I bought myself a new watch, a GPS watch for running. I've been running for a while and never wanted one of these things. And then all of a sudden, I did. So I got one. I got a very, the most affordable version that I could find that had good ratings, whatever. And now I'm like obsessed with monitoring my heart rate. It's not something, <laughs> this was not the purpose <laughs> that I purchased it, that I, that I bought it for, but, but here we are, monitoring my heart rate. Welcome to another episode of The Sound of Doom. The Samuel-only version of Sound Digressions. I'll give you one guess what this episode is going to be about. If you guess SARS-CoV-2, you're right. <laughs> I just can't get enough. <laughs> Let's go. So a couple of weeks back, I did an episode responding to to the podcast Canada Lands, uh, to, responding to their episode about um, an interview with uh, journalist Elaine DeWar um, concerning her new book uh, about the origins of COVID-19. And I had various critiques. I don't think I did a thorough job, you know, like, I did mention a few things that I thought were problematic with her analysis, uh, or incorrect, you know, well, where she gave herself permission to, like, speculate much farther than other people had, um, I read some more, I mean, I, I, I analyzed it some more in my head afterwards, uh, I didn't nitpick on, like, tiny things, but there were other... It was bad. I feel like her takes were... Um, it felt often like she read information as it emerged and not further when it developed. And that's why she was claiming that, um, that COVID-19 might have emerged... Uh, my, <laughs> that's why she was trying to draw a line between this uh, six mine workers. I called them miners, but they weren't miners. They were there to clean up an abandoned mine. Um, there were the six mine workers. Uh, the, the the whatever disease they caught in 2012, which led to the death of three of them. Um had a direct lineage with COVID-19. And that's just not the case. I mean, once she, when she mentioned it, that was the first time I heard it. 
And then I went back and looked, and some of the reporters that she cited mentioned it. Uh, sorry, was it? Yeah, yeah. Um, back in December 2020, but like that was like an e early uh, theory, and it was kind of debunked, and it never was very salient to begin with and stuff. So anyway. So she had a few things that were problematic. Um, and I wasn't the only one that felt that way, I guess. Uh, that her analysis of the virus, her analysis of the science was not particularly good. Um, so, to my surprise, a couple of weeks after Canada Land did their episode with Elaine DeWar, they did a follow-up. They did a second episode concerning the origins of COVID. And this time, they invited a virologist, Angela Rasmussen. Uh, and it was great, in some respects. Um, it was great to have somebody who could correct the science. Uh, and yeah, she, she, she mentioned something that I caught on pretty early. Well, that I thought of early as well, how Elaine DeWar was just like so shocked the, at the discovery that there was a virus named RATG13. In her, in, in DeWar made a point of saying RAT G13. And then uh, it was nice to hear Angela Rasmussen just be like, look, this is why it's called RATG13. And it's the RA, it's for the Latin name of the horseshoe bat. TG uh, is for its location where it was located, the Tongguan uh, County in uh, Yunnan province in China. And 13, it was just for the year that it was discovered. So RATG 13. And it was like super simple stuff. You're like, why is this thing named that way it was. It took me like five seconds to verify uh, that on Wikipedia. And yeah, anyway, not to further critique uh, the war too much. I mean, like I already did an episode on that. But um, let's focus on Rasmussen for, for this episode. I think... Um, I think it was unfortunate that Canada land began with the war. Um, I think they could have gone with much somebody much better, somebody much more neutral, or at least somebody who was more up to date with where things are at. Um, the war came on just after the leaked documents, uh, the leaked um, proposal um, that EcoHealth Alliance had submitted with various partners, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology and um, the University of North Carolina. And I believe it's called, there's another, there's a university in Singapore as well. I think they're called Duke. Um, it's confusing when more than one university has the same name. Um, anyway, it's called Duke, but it's in Singapore. 
And um, what was I saying? <laughs> the war came on just after you know this leaked Eco Health Alliance proposal to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which is part of the Pentagon, um, a military uh, research group agency. Um, but the war wasn't like really, she was there promoting her book and her research and it didn't seem like she was quite prepared for the new things that came out. And in some respects, I guess we can make the same critique of Rasmussen. Now Rasmussen is a virologist and she was able to, like I said, she was able to correct a lot of like little things that the war uh, inadvertently, I'm assuming, uh, got wrong. Um, but I feel like the pendulum swung a little bit too far the other way. Whereas with the war, because of her poor preparation on certain key points, could be quite well, quite criticism. You know, she could, she opened, she left herself open to a lot of criticism. Um, almost to the point where some of the things that she said, I mean, like clearly to the point where some of the things that she said could be dismissed as conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, in using the, the typical pejorative uh, usage of, pejorative intent of labeling anything a conspiracy theory. Rasmussen, on the other hand, um, being a part of the virologist community, uh, I think she leans too far the other way. So the war clearly believes it's lab leaks, uh, that the origins of COVID uh, relate to a leak from a lab. Rasmussen is heavily favors uh, zoonotic origin of for the virus. Um, both of these, up to now, um, well, let's say it this way: neither of these theories, up to now, of these hypotheses, uh, can be verified. So we don't know whether it came from a lab or lab-related activity, or spilled over naturally. And there was one thing that uh, Rasmussen did that, uh, well, there were a couple of things that, that for me were like red flags. Um, and I might get this slightly wrong, or I might make it confusing. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a virologist. Um, from what I've been reading about this subject, I didn't get the sense um, that Rasmussen was presenting, presenting anything wrong. I, that is to say, I didn't, unlike with the war in which even a lay person like me who just follows things on Twitter and on the internet, um, I didn't perceive anything glaringly wrong with the science presented 
by Rasmussen. It'd probably be... Uh, Rasmussen is not the best communicator. Uh, she knows she's an expert and has no patience. Or it didn't sound like she had a lot of patience for explaining things. Which to her are are a matter of fact, I guess, in some sense. Uh, she's not a teacher. She wasn't there to educate. She was there to present a case against the war. Um, that was it. Did I mention that? She was there clearly to present a case against the war. Um, so yeah, the pendulum swinging the other way towards zoonotic origins. One thing that uh, Rasmussen did um, which I've heard other people do as well. I feel like the first time I I ran into this, uh, I might have mentioned it on the podcast before, is, well, Jesse Brown, who was much better prepared for the second interview than he was for the first. It seemed like he 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 received enough criticism that, to induce him not only to do the second episode, but also prepare himself better for that second episode. And one of the people that came up uh, both during the interview with the war and the interview with Rasmussen, uh, one of the people that came up is uh, Nicholas Wade and his reporting. Uh, he has done, as far as I know, two articles for that have been published through the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which you can find at thebulletin.org. And another one more recently that he released on his um, medium. Uh, I think it's Nicholas Wade point medium point com. And Al Jazeera did this too. They dismissed Nicholas Wade uh, or they tried to dismiss his reporting by citing a previous work which he wrote, in which, in, in which it is alleged that he concluded that um, some form of eugenics uh, had led to the rise. And I, I'm not sure. I, I don't have the full argument in my head. I haven't looked into it. Uh, because I feel like it's not really relevant to to the reporting around the origins of COVID. Whatever his reporting might have been uh, and whatever mistakes he might have made, um, whatever, you know, whatever erroneous conclusions he might have reached in, in the previous book uh, is not a good enough reason to negate his more recent work. Sure, that it's enough to make you suspicious of his work, certainly, but it's not enough to refute it, uh, to say that he got something wrong in the past. And it's not enough to refute it in this case, particularly because it's almost weekly now that like every major newspaper Every major media organization has done at least one 
most of them have, have done numerous uh, reports on the exact same stuff that Nicholas Wade is reporting on. So if he was alone in reporting this, and you know, you, you could consider his previous work to 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 analyze whether he's worth paying attention to. But he's not alone. You know, he is cited because he has been one of the first. He was one of the first uh, names to publish uh, credible information uh, around suspicions of uh, SARS-CoV-2 emerging from a lab. But he is far from alone at this point. Uh, I mean, I just watched last week, or maybe a week and a half ago, like a full-hour documentary by Shari Markson, an Australian reporter, uh, Sky News Australia. The, and she's published. She she has also just published like a full book um, regarding the origins of COVID and the suspicion too that it's that it's emerged from a lab. Um, the suspicion is strong in her, you know, her thesis is strong around that. And I watched a Channel 4 documentary on the origins of COVID that's uh, from the UK. Uh, just this week, uh, another documentary has come from EC Radio Canada. So it's not like Nicholas Wade is out on this island by himself. So, doing what Rasmussen does, which is just like, she just says, I'm not going to discuss anything um, written by Dominic, uh, by Nicholas Wade, because he's racist. I feel like, considering all the other evidence around I don't think it's a valid position to take because now you've made it about the personality and not, a, you know, and by making it about that, you, you totally avoid looking at any of the evidence. And a lot of what um, Nicholas Wade has written about, particularly in the last two articles he published, it's regarding the secrecy and the lack of transparency and the secret meetings, you know, that that um, that high play that that the virologists in high places, the virologists with access to funding, uh, they who control the money, they are being extremely obscure about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. They're hiding how much they have known up to now. And I mean, like, to mention it again, the DARPA proposal, which was rejected, as we said this before, everybody has has noted this before, uh, Rasmussen also mentions that it was rejected. Um, but the ideas were out there. The ideas for creating, you know, what, what this DARPA proposal showed was that EcoHealth Alliance and its partners clearly had in mind to create... Um, SARS coronaviruses 
very similar to SARS-CoV-19. Uh, SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19. The, the virus that gives us COVID-19. So, uh, one thing that Angela Rasmussen does, which has I've seen happen on Twitter as well uh, by other virologists or other defenders of the zoonotic origin um, theory, is that they kind of they, they they dismiss the idea that the fur and cleavage site um, was inserted into a novel coronavirus. Uh, you know that that, that this that this insertion could have happened. And the way they do it is to say that if this furring cleavage site had been engineered, it would have been better. That it's not optimal. And therefore, uh, it's because it's not optimal, whatever that means, it's not, it's probably unlikely that I was inserted intentionally in a lab. Now, I don't know how true or wrong her assessment is, but from my understanding of things, the claim from the people who, who suggest that maybe there's some, some engineering happening in the lab, it's not that this foreign cleavage side I mean, like what what they're what they're saying is possible is that this foreign first cleavage site was possibly inserted. They're not saying that this foreign cleavage site was created. That is to say, you know, engineered from scratch. Nobody nobody's saying that. I feel like Rasmussen is attacking that, but like nobody's saying that. Uh, what we what we see from the DARPA proposal, and what you hear from other people as well, is that. The suspicion is rather that an existing, naturally occurring, furring cleavage site, and we know that these exist because other viruses have them, including MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that emerged in 2009. I think it's 2009. Maybe it was 2008. Anyway, MERS has a furring cleavage site as well. Uh, so the the suspicion is that the furring cleavage site was inserted, not that it was engineered in a particular way, you know, in 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 the particular way that Rasmussen is suggesting it was. Uh, it's hmm, it's complicated. It's hard to really. Trust Rasmussen because I mean, like, well, because of like <laughs> her previous work. She was she was known to me. I feel like as soon as I heard that Canada Land was doing an interview with somebody called Rasmussen, I was like, that name sounds familiar. And I checked on Twitter, and sure enough, she has gotten into fights with people about the origins of COVID, and you know, she doesn't think much of drastic and. She very much, uh, like like the majority of like prominent virologists, really sides with authority, with the virologist community, 
uh, who think that who think that there's no conflicts of interest in their position, and I don't know somehow uh, believe that. I get the sense that the that the virology establishment feels attacked, and so um, they've really come out as a team to defend themselves. If uh, I mean, like, because the lap leak theory would implicate a large number of them, a large number of prominent virologists and their research. Uh, not all the research, just the gain-of-function re- research, uh, like that being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the University of North Carolina, and other labs around the world. And so to defend themselves, they appeal to authority. And who's the authority? Themselves. <laughs> that's, the, that's the argument. It's that nobody can know better than this select group of virologists uh, how to assess um, virology. And this sort of gatekeeping is what led precisely to like the, the assessment in Nature Medicine and the opinion piece in The Lancet near the beginning of 2020 that really kind of froze all talk of a potential lab leak. Uh, If you don't know what either of those two things are, uh, (laughs) you can look them up, uh, I guess. (laughs) Uh, They're quite common knowledge that, it's quite common knowledge that uh, the Lancet letter and the Nature Medicine uh, article um, established themselves uh, as though purporting that there was a consensus among scientists that zoonotic origin was mo- more than likely and that lab, a potential lab leak was a conspiracy theory in the pejorative sense. So... Yeah, Rasmussen is part of the is part of the team, and she's playing as part of the team. And I and thus does not accept accept any or tends to not accept um, any critique uh, or I don't know. She does she does concede at this point that. Um, a potential lab leak is that the, the lab leak has not been ruled out. She concedes that, um, but from her analysis, and I don't believe that if this is insincere in any way, uh, from her analysis, uh, zoonotic emergence of the virus seems a lot more probable. And one thing that that, that I've been thinking about is that uh, whenever the explanation is given, you know, whenever, like, the evidence uh, 
is presented regarding why zoonotic emergence is more probable than than uh, a potential lab leak. The analysis is always very um, jargonful and not easily accessible. So they'll talk about like specific proteins and their connections and receptor binding domains and furin cleavage sites and which is all stuff that the those wanting a more thorough investigation of a potential lab leak are, are talking about too but maybe I don't know I don't know what it is but the lab leak people uh, tend to communicate better tend to communicate more clearly tend to and maybe that's a factor of I mean like what what how what do you attribute what do we attribute that to? Is it because they are not as expert, which is what the virologists would want you to believe? Or is it because their case is so clear, it is so it is easy to for a lay person to understand. And the virologists are making it overcomplicated in order to because the efforts to defend their position are so much more complicated. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop with this. I feel like, um, you know, I really wanted to do like a second, a second response. I think, um, yeah, one other thing that, that Rasmussen uh, touches on is, uh, again, you know, this is like the continuous, like appealing to authority. We are the authority. Authority is right. Authority is might um she attacks alina chan uh a little bit it's not like a personal attack it's it's what uh, alina chan and another scientist whose name i forgotten uh they published a preprint in sometime in 2020 a preprint is like they've submitted an article for publication to one of like a prestigious one of the the well-known science magazines and a preprint is merely releasing the paper before it's printed, before it's accepted, before it's peer-reviewed. So, uh, Rasmussen dismisses this preprint because it hasn't been printed yet. She's like, it's been stuck as a preprint for a really long time, and therefore it hasn't been peer-reviewed. And therefore, we cannot think about it. One of the interesting things, amongst the many interesting things that Alina Chan has shown in her continuous analysis of the potential uh, lab origins of SARS-CoV-2, is critiquing precisely this this culture of preprints and peer-reviewed and publication. Uh, and highlighting how it's flawed because political connections and affiliations can go a long way towards 
helping you get published. And she also cites the problems with the peer review process being secret. Um, because then you don't know precisely how much of an effort someone has made to review a paper. And she highlights examples from that she has witnessed where, you know, as somebody who has performed uh, peer reviews and, you know, cases where somebody has merely edited a few orthographic errors and other person, you know, and that will count as a peer review and another person doing like a thorough analysis of the science and that also being considered a peer review. So, there, there, it is problematic to have these preprints out there who are that are not peer reviewed. But it's also uh, the peer review system itself is not fantastic. It's not what it purports to be all the time. So, but Rasmussen doesn't think about any potential problems with the peer review system. She doesn't have to. She's an established virologist. She gets published. And, you know, she's well connected. She's uh, Those people who, who published in Nature Medicine, uh, she works with some of them. So, there you go. Appeal to authority. Again, I felt so strongly, you know, like after Canada landed the first episode, I tweeted a couple of things to them and I was like, uh, <laughs> maybe I should have started the podcast off with this rather than trying to get into the techno stuff, which like, even I don't know if I'm like, fuck, um, I'm so happy that there, that there's like so many people, uh, out there now looking into it and people with, um, who are professional journalists, who are <laughs> who are scientists, who <laughs> can properly revise this information and like, you know, t talk about it. <laughs> I'm not the best. I'm not qualified to do this. <laughs> but but okay. So so I'll talk about what I'm qualified to talk about. So social media interactions. <laughs> Which maybe I'm not qualified for that either. I have so few. But uh, so after the first episode uh, with with the war, I tweeted a couple of things to to the Canada Land account, you know, stating how I thought they missed a few things, and and then again I tweeted a second time after the the, the, the last episode with uh, Angela Rasmussen, and and that wasn't enough for me, so I drafted like a long-ish I don't know how many words it was it wasn't that long like once I, I felt like it was really long a really long email to Canada land um to Jesse Brown uh saying hey uh I think you should look at these other things I think Rasmussen failed in some of the ways that I've talked about already um on this episode and here are some things that, you know, maybe you would like to look at. Instead, uh, I think that Nicholas Wade is worth reading. I think that um, Sharon Lerner and a couple of her colleagues at The Intercept did, like, some really awesome reporting. 
and did like a uh, released a podcast episode discussing uh, their their reporting, which was really awesome, and they touch with a lot of things that Rasmussen doesn't touch, uh, and they do a much better job. And yeah, anyway, <laughs> I felt compelled to write an email, and that's very rare for me. Uh, I don't think I ever really want to. I mean, like even tweeting, uh, it just seems like uh, you know you're throwing. You're sprinkling water droplets into an ocean and it's like thinking it's going to make a difference, right? Uh, <laughs> but I felt compelled enough to like uh, write an email. So yeah, there we go. Now uh, now Jesse Brown knows how to reach me. Should he listen <laughs> to this rambling episode and think, oh, maybe Samuel's onto something. Uh, which, <laughs> which I sincerely doubt. Anyway... All that to say, uh, kudos to Jesse Brown and Canada Land for entering the deep, the mud, the deep pile of mud and mudslinging <laughs> that is the origins of COVID debate. Uh, they could do 10 episodes on this and and they'll still have hundreds or thousands of people like me compelled to tweet or send them an email stating how they got things wrong. <laughs> you can't please everybody. You just can't please everybody. Uh, so kudos to them for jumping into the fray. Not once, but twice. Uh -huh. I feel very comfortable jumping into the fray my myself, seeing as I don't really have an audience. <laughs> I mean, I do, but it's very small. So uh, <laughs> I, there's no fear of repercussions for me in the same way that there would be if I, I had a you know a substantial number of people who who enjoyed my show and then suddenly were outraged that I was um, in their mind giving airtime to conspiracy theories. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I feel like at this point, I <laughs> maybe even I shouldn't do any more episodes on the origins of COVID. I probably will. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the World Health... I mean, like, I still have to watch... I, I, I got, like, halfway through reading this article on EC Radio Canada today. And I think I found a link to another documentary. I, I, I bookmarked it on Twitter, but I haven't checked the link yet. But it seems like there's like a two-part documentary uh, put out by Radio Canada as well. So, uh, so I'll check that out maybe later today. And yeah, so there's always there's always more to say. There's always more to, more, more to learn. And uh, the World Health Organization actually this week, is in the middle of organizing a new team to investigate 
the origins of COVID. It's called SAGO. I can't remember what it stands for. Uh, S-A-G-O. Hold on, let me look it up. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, the WHO is, you know, disbanded the scientific advisory group on the origins of novel pathogens uh, due to all the conflicts of interest that were pointed out by various people uh, due to the fact that they, they, they came to no conclusions no about the origins of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And they've started reassembling a new team. They've, they announced uh, some time ago that they would create a new team and it turns out that the new, the old, <laughs> the new scientific advisory group on the origins of novel pathogens looks a lot like the old scientific advisory group on the origins of novel pathogens. Herefore, it's called SAGO. Um, so yeah, it sounds like they <laughs> they disbanded it and they reassembled it with a lot of the same people in it. And it's just like, for fuck's sake, WHO, you're not helping your credibility here if you're not... <sighs> yeah, you got you got to make an effort. you got to make it look like you're making an effort. Uh, <laughs> you can't just hire the same people. Oh, well, well, there we go. Uh, that's the... <laughs> you know, I... I I was gonna do. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I I talk too much about SARS-CoV-2. Maybe we should do something, um, something more lighthearted, more uh, <laughs> something which uh, I can comment on without sounding. Um, <laughs> I don't know, conspiratorial. Um, or, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not a virologist. I, I keep saying that. I've just, uh, I, you know, if I could explain the science to you, I would. But I can't. Uh, not all of it. I feel like I, I, I've mentioned this before. I like it when other people explain it to me. And I like it when people explain it in a clear way. And I'm not there yet. I'm not able to pass that on. Not yet. Maybe one day. One day, somebody will say, oh my god, I understand what a furin cleavage site is, thanks to Samuel. So, I hope that happens in the next 10 years. Uh, but if not, no big deal. Um, anyway, this is just to say that I'm thinking the next episode after this one, uh, I might do it on Squid Game. Because I've watched almost the entire series, and I think it sucks. Um, <laughs> so delving into less controversial territory, why Squid Game sucks. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's the episode for today. I hope you have a lovely uh, whatever time of the day it is for you when you're listening. And we'll talk again another time. Okay. Bye.